Hello and welcome to another episode of Cripple Stump. My name is Shabazz Bahabit and today we have another guest and I'll let I'll, I'll hand it over to them to introduce themselves. I'm Joe Woodinger. I'm involved very much with uh, the Alliance for Inclusive Education for the past 25 years and also uh, the Greater Manchester Coalition of Disabled People uh, also as an exec member. Uh, I've been involved in education and inclusive education and campaigning for inclusive education uh, really for the last 40 years. Uh, and I work with uh, mainly individuals and families who have been kept out of, that is, individual families of disabled young people who have been kept out of uh, ordinary schooling, uh, and much of the work I'm involved with is campaigning to make that, uh, ensure that people get full access with appropriate support uh, in ordinary school in lives, in all sectors. That's primary, secondary uh, schools, colleges and universities. Okay. And the first thing I wanted to ask you was, like, could you tell me about being excluded? from school at the age of 13. What do you remember of that? Well, you know, it's really quite strange. I'm nearly 70 now, and it's still that sort of period when I was 13 is still a really vivid image. And it wasn't just a one-off, it was a process. And um, I, I was in a, a secondary school. I'd only been there for a couple of years but much of it was just uh, a dreadful experience. I, uh, I didn't fit in very well at all. Uh, my dad had just died when I was, uh, when I was 12. Um, and and that, was, that was never really acknowledged. It was just something you got on with. Uh, and then when I was at school, uh, I was really struggling because I didn't connect with anything that was going on at the school. And the school were not really interested in knowing who I was or what I was struggling with. So I spent a lot of time, what we used to call wagging from school, wagging it off, you know, disappearing. Uh, and then uh, they, uh, they eventually sent out the school board to the house and... Uh, that was a pretty disastrous situation because I wouldn't open the door and all that sort of stuff. But then they decided the best thing for me to do was to, to leave and go to a school nearby where I lived in. That was in uh, Openshaw in Manchester. So that was, and, and I, was, I was really clear then when they uh, excluded me from school that, they they didn't they didn't do their job right. They didn't want to hear who I was as an individual, uh, and the best thing to do is to get rid of the problem as they saw me. Uh, but I still remember that, and I think that's one of the reasons why I eventually went into teaching because I thought, well, you know, I could do it far better than they did. Yeah. And in the forty years of teaching, I've never excluded any youngster at all from any of the teaching that I've been involved with. And in those 40 years, can you remember any, like, 
particular individuals that resembled yourself? Was That's a good other? question. <laughs> many, many, many. Although the, the circumstances were very unique uh, for, for each individual, of course. But the important thing is, I think that you know, you get to know youngsters, you get to know uh, people in the, the classroom. And so many youngsters bring with them a lot of issues that they're having to deal with, having to manage. And you recognize those individuals, they may not tell you what their particular struggles are or what supports they require. That comes after a long period of time through good relationships. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's still lots of youngsters that, and, and adults uh, that I was working with that, uh, that managed managed uh, despite their difficulties and the last thing that they wanted or they needed was to be excluded but yeah there are many many youngsters that are many people that are really struggling with lots of issues and one of the things as I see about good education is being able to listen and listen and listen and listen until you understand what those issues are and uh, what happened to you after the age of 30? I mean, how did, how did you con continue your education? What, what literally happened to you after that? Well, I, after that, I went to a... Uh, I, was in, I was in what we call the grammar school stream. Okay, it was a comprehensive school, but they had a grammar school stream. Yeah. Strange, but that's how it was. Uh, and then I went, I left, when I got thrown out of there, I left to go to uh, a secondary modern school, uh, which, uh, which was fine. I, I, I fit in very well there. It was nearer to home. Um, I've always seen myself as a bit of a, an odd bod yeah. in lots of ways. But I managed there. Uh, and people were friendly. Teachers were friendly. And more more open and honest. Um, and, and so there I've, I just got through and, you know, I left without any qualifications at all uh, because they didn't do qualifications there. They didn't do O levels or A levels. So when I left at uh, 16, uh, I went to um, further education uh, uh, and did some, uh, couple of O levels there and then I went to work but it it was it was always uh, that message that I'd been thrown out of school and therefore when you get thrown out of school you're perceived and to a certain extent you see yourself as a bit of a failure and I spent most of my life uh, I think challenging that notion of failure and I and I do believe that individuals don't fail. Schools fail you. Yeah. But how long did it, do you think it took you to kind of come to that realisation? Were you considering yourself a failure? Yeah. For the, for oh, yeah. the early part of it? Well, very, very early on. And, and to a certain extent, I still have to, I still have to struggle with that. I still... Yeah. I still 
they, they call it, uh, you know, this 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 idea of um, you you never really, even though I can articulate that I don't see myself as a failure. Yeah. The fact of being rejected from school and excluded from school leaves a very, very, I believe, leaves a very powerful stain on an individual. Yeah. And, and, and although I could say to you, yeah, no, that's gone. I don't see myself as failure. Yeah. There are still elements of that which are still really quite powerful. Uh, and I struggle with it still, even though I'm now retired. <laughs> I yeah. still struggle with that. Why didn't they listen to me? Yeah. Why did they get me wrong? And why do you think that is? Because, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, I don't think professionals, and I say teachers, social workers, um, health professionals, I don't think they're encouraged or they don't know how to listen. They don't listen. And I believe it's very much uh, to their damage and to other people's damage. They make assumptions based upon where you live, uh, your gender, your race, your disability, rather than find out who individuals are, uh, they're almost trained to respond to a set of characteristics. I think that's a major failing in schooling. Did anybody, do you remember, did anybody even try to ask you what's going on at home? No. No. Not at all. Not at all. No. Yeah. And I think that had one person had said, you know, is there any issues? Is there anything we can help you with? I, I was more than willing to tell them. Yeah. I was really open to that because nobody talked to me about my dad dying at home, for example. Yeah. He, you know, I didn't go to the funeral. It was just, it was there uh, one period and then it just disappeared. Yeah. And nobody talked about it. And have you processed it privately now, or, or yeah. have you have you not really done that yet? No, I did. When I was in my forties, mm. uh, I went to psychotherapy with a group of other people oh, okay. who were struggling uh, and uh, addressed many of those questions. And the question I had, you know, nobody had told me that my dad had died. Yeah. Nobody had mentioned it, you know. Yeah. It was just one of those things that you don't talk yeah. about. Whereas this process that I went to with uh, a group of other people, you are actively encouraged to talk about it. That was extremely yeah. helpful. Yeah. And I was just wondering, do you think uh, that sort of, like, sort of training should be given as part of teacher training to teachers? So they can pick up on stuff like that. Absolutely. I mean, I think if anybody is in working in statutory services, right, social work, teaching, I think that if you're going to be effective as a teacher, you need to find out who people are. And again, 
you know, I worked, talked about these issues when I was 40 odd. I've carried them with me all my life, really yeah. thought of not knowing what to do with them. If somebody would have asked me at 12, 13, what I was struggling with, I, I would have been quite happy to share some of that. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think it's not just about asking the questions, it's about yeah. whether you know somebody's listening. Yeah. You see, I can tell now, within 10 minutes, you listen yeah. by the way in which you ask questions. Mm. That immediately gives me confidence in you. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I'm just asking because I'm fundamentally, I'm interested in yeah. people and I'm, I'm just, I want to help other people. And I think by me asking you these kind of straightforward, like straight to the point questions, it will get answers for other people and it will avoid other people having to go through what you, you went through. Totally agree. You know, and uh, I, I just think it's a crying shame that we've never had that, you know, in, that, in schools that we never have that, that fully rounded approach of like going, these are human beings they're complex creatures, if you will. And we have to think of them as a whole people rather than, oh, he's just a student or she's just a student or, you know, whatever. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, um, yeah. Do you, here's a question for you. Do you think it's changed now? I, I wish I could say it had. I, 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 you know, when we, for example, have many of the divisions and we're still excluding kids, we still exclude lots of kids, we still segregate lots of kids yeah. into special schools, segregated schools, yeah. that suggests to me we're absolutely not listening. We're absolutely not listening in a way that makes real meaning, that enables people to develop confidence through good relationships, confidence in them, confidence in themselves. No, I really don't think we're very good at listening at all. And don't you think that's criminal, really? It's, if we could absolutely make a law of that, I would. Yeah. Because to judge somebody without engaging and listening to who they are, and listen, I'm not saying listening's easy. We have to work at that. We have to practice at that. But I think for, for teachers who don't listen, mm. uh, uh, I, I, I would say almost by defini definition, if they're not listening to individuals, they're not effective as teachers. Do you think class or race plays any part in any of this? Huge. Yeah, of course. Uh, teachers are racists. Yeah. You know. And, you know, it's... it's I, I don't think they, they would set out to be racist, but the circumstances... I mean, in my schools, 
there were no black or Asian kids at all when I was growing up. Yeah. Uh, I had I had a, a stereotypical view myself yeah. of uh, kids who were different, but black and Asian youngsters yeah. uh, were, were seen as different. And teachers, I mean, you only had to look at the number of kids who were excluded and whether they were black or people of colour to realise, you know, there's something going wrong there. The number yeah. of kids, black and people of colour in, in special schools, segregated schools, hugely disproportionate, and particularly black Afro-Caribbean families when they came uh, to the UK in the 50s, 60s. So many of those youngsters, rather than finding out who they were, what such rich contributions they had to make, they finished up in segregated special schools. And often, often these people have thought about like as having complex problems, but let's just go back to what you said before. It was about you just being uh, spoken to about your dad. Often something as simple as that could have made a huge difference, right? Huge. And and, and still today. I mean, if, if you want to find out the different contributions that people have to make, uh, very different contributions from... All, all quarters, um, finding out what where they come from, what their interests were, what, what excites them, what, what they're passionate about. That begins, you know, you begin a relationship and you can't have a good teaching without good, effective relationships. That's my view. Yeah. But here's a question for you. Is there any part of you at all that... that has any sympathy with the teachers? Well, I, I, I said, no. <laughs> okay. Why not? <laughs> no. Partly because that doesn't mean to say, um, you know, I want to dismiss teachers. Of course I don't. I'm not saying that their, their work is easy work, but they, they make it a lot more difficult than it is. It should be, it should be a real privilege yeah. to, to teach youngsters. It is for me yeah. and an adult. You know, you're there as a teacher to provide a service of support. You're paid to do that. Yeah. You're paid. You know, the kids are not there for you. You're there for them. And so any sympathies, uh, yeah, of course, extra training, extra support, blah, blah, blah. Yes, all of those things. But it's ultimately their responsibility. And if they don't have what they need to teach, then they should be calling upon the school and the hierarchy within the school to provide that support and get support from each other. But they shouldn't be using that as an excuse not to listen to the youngsters that they have a responsibility for. So they can't use the excuse of the bureaucratic workload then. Okay, yeah, but I mean we we can we can all complain about that. Of course we can. Family, I came from a large family. There mm. were seven children in our family. I was the youngest. My mother was a single parent. 
she had great claims on that. I'm saying I don't have the resources to to manage this, but mm. she didn't throw me out. Yeah. Did any of your other brothers and sisters get excluded, or was it just you? It was just me. All right. But um, I mean, again, again, they sort of, uh, they they didn't have a, a particularly good time in education or school. I don't call it education; it's schooling. Education takes place despite schools getting in the way. Education is something much bigger. Schools, schools like to divide and categorize and measure and label you, uh, they don't educate. Uh, I, I was wondering, do you, do you know of any like, differences of approaches around the world to this? Yeah, I do. I mean, I've traveled to many places in Africa, America, in the Middle East, yeah. in Europe. Could you tell me a bit about them, please? Yeah, well, again, I, I, I still think that there are lots of uh, the schooling system or schooling systems. Mm. They're not there to educate. They're there, as I see it, to control, yeah. to, to get people to conform, to get youngsters to conform. Yeah. There, there was saying that if schools changed anything, they would have been banned a long time ago. <laughs> schools, schools actually are there to get people to conform to what a society wants. And prepare it, that's why you only get a small percentage of people, or you did when I was at school, going to university. Yeah. You know, and people going to the factories, which there's not many of these days, but yeah. the schooling system is there to perpetuate the differences, yeah. not to welcome difference. So, so could you tell me a bit about your experience? Like you said, you went to Africa. Yeah, Africa. I was in Zambia. Yeah. Uh, I was in, uh, yeah, uh, Kenya, Nairobi, uh, visiting and working alongside others. And, you know, the, the one thing that I recognize is that people are the same the world over, same yeah. but very different. Yeah. yeah. You know, and uh, I, I also worked, I worked in a place called Papua New Guinea in the 80s. Yeah where uh, the, the school I was working in yeah. um, were in the, in the highlands of Jimbo and they, uh, they were, when I arrived, I looked like a bottle of sterilized milk. <laughs> okay. Right? And, yeah. uh, and there in the school, I was the only white person. Yeah. All the youngsters were black and they prided themselves in just how black they were. Yeah. And they said, you know, we're the blackest race of people within this, from this tribe. Yeah, yeah. But one of the things that struck me, and as I stood out as a bottle of milk, yeah, uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't distinguish between one black 
student and the other. They all yeah. look very much the same to yeah, me yeah. at that time. And I remember the teacher who was from the Solomon Islands. You remember within the school, he said, the longer you're together, mm. the youngsters that you all see as, as black and the teachers as black, he said, the longer you're together, the whiter they will go and the blacker you will become. Yeah. And, and the point he was making there is that the longer we're together, you know, we do see all shades of colour yeah. and texture and smells and sensations. And, and now I look back and, and I, I can't imagine why I could possibly see that group of youngsters I used to teach as being the same because I look at photographs now immediately recognize the range of differences in people yeah very different characters yeah and and it must have been like did you ever pinch yourself when you were there like going the 13 year old you that was you <laughs> ended up there it must have been a bit of a Surreal experiences, right? You, you, you ask very interesting questions, Shabazz. Very interesting. Uh, now is the short answer. But I knew, I knew what I was doing there and what I've done most of my uh, teaching life is what I know that the teachers who were supposedly teaching me at 13 should have been doing and listening to me and finding and out you, who I was. And did that make you more angry? Did that, did that like... I, 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 I tend not to get angry. I'm not really an angry really? person. Okay. Yeah, not really. Just, uh, just uh, frustrated. I get, I get, I think I get more angry for other youngsters that I still see what's happening now. Yeah. You know, particularly uh, disabled kids who are not even given the opportunity to to go to ordinary school, black disabled kids who are even within within a group of disabled people, there's still racism racism within disabled people's organisations, where it's yeah. predominantly white, mm. uh, and I, that's that angers me. And we need to, we really do need to hear those different voices. Because I, I think you're a fascinating wealth of, you're a wealth of knowledge and experience. And I think that's why the listeners need to hear this because, because it's so rich with information and it's so rich with what, what we what mistakes we shouldn't repeat and what because what usually frustrates me along with loads of other things is mistakes being repeated over and over again when they simply it's easy not it's easier not to do the mistake over and over again if only like you said if only people listen you know well you see that, that is, a, is a really good example. You see, I don't believe, I don't believe that people have learning difficulties, for example. Yeah. 
I think schools have teaching difficulties. Yeah. And I think that what would help them to overcome those teaching difficulties is by listening and learning from the youngsters that they're with. And I found that in, in schools right across the world. Yeah. And one of the definitions of uh, learning difficulties is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting you come up and come out with a different result. Yeah. You don't when you're doing the same thing. And schools do the same thing now that they did when I was at school yeah. before me. And what they do, as I see it, they find a difference. If you and I were in the same classroom, yeah. they find differences between me and you mm. and exploit that difference. Yeah. They give you an A star yeah. and give me a D. Yeah. So it strikes me that if you think about it, so our society's got learning difficulties then. Well, you see, I, I think that learning difficulties is something we construct. Yeah. I think it's something we create and we make and we get people to take ownership of the, the differences and the negative differences that have been given to us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I can say, for example, oh, I'm no good at maths. I'm no good at drawing. Mm -hmm. I'm no good at languages. You know, I take ownership. I'm no good. Well, that's nonsense. I may not want to do languages. I may not want to do drawing, but I'm good at a lot of things. I can enjoy a lot of things. I can do a lot of things. And what we should be doing is really encouraging people to be honest and open and learn about themselves and about their differences mm. uh, and be supporting and encouraging that, not creating the differences to actually say, you are okay, I'm not okay. I think and that's racism. That's what we've done with racism. You know, that race of people are better than that race of people, are worse than that race of people. That's, that's racism at its worst. And that's what happens to disabled people where they're treated as a group. Yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I was just thinking that when you were saying, you know, we we hear a lot about in schools that we haven't got the money, we haven't got the resources. But you know, the one thing they need, they need to do, and it keeps coming through in this conversation, is listen. And listening doesn't cost money, right? Absolutely. You know, I've been to places, uh, certainly uh, places in America, that uh, the the resources that they had in the school were immense, immense. You know, uh, carpets, uh, open plan schools, classrooms, all the resources that you wanted. And they would say, and they did say, well, we would have those disabled kids in, but we can't really afford it, right? I've been to schools in, uh, in parts of uh, Africa, in parts of Eastern Europe where they 
and the school where I was in Papua New Guinea, where we had to build the school. The kids had to build a school, right, while they were teaching. And, you know, they didn't have any, they didn't have any desks to work at or chairs to sit on. They had, they had pieces of whiteboard uh, or chalkboard that they could chalk on. And they never turned around and said, oh, we can't have that youngster in because we don't have the resources. It was, let's use the resources that we've got. Mm. So resources and not having the resources is an excuse that is unacceptable. Mm. You, as you quite rightly say, you know, listening to kids does not cost money. And this is not about what it costs. Mm. It's the value, it's the respect, it's human rights. Yeah. That doesn't have a price on it. But it, but it seems like it does in our society. No, people put a price on it and use that as an excuse. Yeah. And I would say always, you know, this is not about a cost. This is not about how much does it cost to include that child, yeah. that youngster. It's not about how much does it cost. Yeah. It's you, you, as a school, yeah. have a responsibility to find the supports for that youngster. Yeah. Because the other thing about cost, Shabazz, yeah. is that the number of youngsters that are thrown out of school mm. and then to put them in a segregated special school mm. costs five times 10 times, 100 times, 20, 200 times more. Yeah. Because segregating and excluding a youngster is a huge expense, not only for that youngster, but for that youngster's family and for society, that we're losing out on that talent, on those skills, on their contribution. And is that an undisputable fact? That I'm giving it cost. you as a fact. Yeah. I'm giving it you as a fact. It just because cost. if you ask local authorities mm. how much, and this is only in the UK. Yeah. Around the world, you know, it's happening all the time. Yeah. The cost of, because if you segregate a child yeah. at early years, that segregation leads to further segregation yeah. in friendships, in employment, in housing, yeah. in everything. And you've lost that contribution, you're losing that contribution. Mm. And that's just... such a waste of human life yeah. and a waste of real valuable resource to everybody. That, that just puts me in mind of, you know, like with every couple price on it, it seems that this government has, in the sense that, you know, the funding that they've put for the catch-up classes for each each student is £50 in, <laughs> yeah. in, in England well, compared to £2,000 in the Netherlands, you know? Yeah, well, my, my question is when they talked about catch-up classes, catch-up to what? Yeah. What are they catching up to? Yeah. And I, I just think it's such a vague term. I, I, I would be saying, look, what we need to be doing is really creating a situation 
whereby we stop locking kids out and excluding kids. Do you, there's a huge, huge existing resource. Schools, okay, schools are used for only 13% of the time that is available. 13, 1, 3%. Okay, have those schools available 24 hours a day? Have kids going into them whenever they want and, and learn and use the resources that for me is a far more valuable way of so-called catching up than yeah. whether they're going to open for another half hour a week. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if you're aware in the new bill that's been proposed, the uh, the crime and sentencing bill, they proposed something called secure schools, right? Where you can lock kids up and they from a younger age is 10 years old. Well, you said at the beginning it's criminal. It's criminal. And but because the governments get, get it, they get funded for it. Uh, it's just disgusting. And these 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 places are gonna have charitable status, you know? Yeah. Of course. Rather than take responsibility, give it to somebody else who's supposedly then going to and what the charity schools do, uh, you know, for me, it's deeply, deeply wounding uh, to, to again, dividing people uh, and saying, you know, they're better than those others. It's so divisive. And even if they've got good intent, their actions by segregating is so damaging. I'm going to disabled people, right? I'll, I'll give you an example. I think disabled people aren't educated very well by, by, by our government, purely for the fact that we as disabled people aren't economically viable. But by that I mean that as we as we grow older and get get a job, we we can't make anybody that much money. You know what I mean? But, but uh, and I think that that is incredibly short-sighted by government. It's incredibly narrow thinking to see people in terms of their economic value rather than the unique contribution that people make and can unique contribute and unique relationships. Because when we actually begin to recognize you know, the differences in others, we come to value also the differences within ourselves. Yeah. And, and that, so often kids really struggle, or people struggle because they're afraid to be found out. Yeah. And, and because what, what they're, they're denying much of what they've got to contribute, that is a failing. But I think it's particularly true for disabled youngsters. Would you agree with what I was saying though? Would you Absolutely, agree that totally. government do do that? Totally. And successive governments have. Yeah. You know, there's been no major reform, no major reform for uh, young disabled people and disabled adults. They've been marginalized and made to be marginalized 
within society and and to be seen as non-productive. Yeah. Uh, and I and I would say that the case for inclusive schooling is quite powerful because I would say that you would reduce disability hate crime, you know, uh, tenfold. Uh, you're absolutely exist. right. Segregation and marginalisation and isolation leads to the worst characteristics in our society. Hate crime, absolutely. Complete uh, rejection of groups of people, absolutely. And, and inclusion is about, as far as I'm concerned, liberating everybody, treating people with respect, and more importantly, as a, treating yourself with respect. And and it's a marker of your society as well, isn't it? It's like, a, a crucial, yeah. crucial indicator of society, and and the the number of people that we segregate and uh, are, are marginalised is an indication. And in our country, you know, we talk about uh, well, two percent of youngsters who are segregated completely. Uh, there are thirteen that are sort of. Uh, on the periphery of segregation. And then they do talk about 40% of youngsters that go to school, 40% of youngsters that are seen as what they call disaffected from school. So again, don't see themselves as part of school and, and to be, uh, be valued within school. And you know, only a small percentage uh, are seen as real successes. And they, they they call those successes with people with qualifications, significant uh, university qualifications and A-levels. It's such a narrow, narrow way of receiving a person's contribution. How do you keep yourself going? By carrying on and carrying on and carrying on. We've got no choice i i think that you know we can see all around us dreadful things happening all around the world even you know locally um and i remember listening to one bloke who uh, all his family had been uh killed in, in bombs yeah. in syria uh is is his wife uh eight children i think he had uh, his, his parents and his sister and and he was working in a school with youngsters who had survived the bombing and he was asked that very question and he said I don't have the luxury of despair yeah. what else do I have I just carry on now I'm not equating myself in any way to the dreadful experiences of that person but we can find ourselves all of us can find ourselves in pretty unrelenting oppression from people and organizations of power mm. uh, and i can understand when people say i've had enough you know i'm just going to close myself away and just sort of 
live quietly, absolutely. But I'm not a quiet person. Yeah. Do you do you think you've been listened to more or less as you got older? You know, um, I, I think again, very good question. Uh, the short answer to that is I really don't know. But an added part of that, I don't care. You know what I care about is I don't care whether people get upset by what I say. I don't care if I offend people by what I say. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to have the argument. I'm happy to have the discussion. Mm. What I would be upset by is if I didn't say it because people were uncomfortable mm. or people didn't like it. I don't care about that, really. And one of the great things about get, getting older, I absolutely couldn't give a toss. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, people can turn away, people can turn off, people can stop visiting, people can stop listening, people can argue against it, but that's fine. That's fine. I would welcome that. I think that's a great attitude, to be honest. Uh, and I don't know what you'd think about this question, but, but I'll ask it anyway. What... What it just came to me then, would you like to be education secretary? No. And if so, what would you do with it? Well, no, because you see, I I don't think power, I, I think they do have power in, in government and education secretary. Yeah. Uh, I think that the work of organizations like the disabled people's organizations the Alliance for Inclusive Education, I think that they've got the right idea. I really do, by actually getting rid of uh, and struggling against uh, abuse of power and actually ensuring people are supported appropriately uh, and recognise the oppression on them and challenge that oppression wherever it is. Even in so-called inclusive schools, there's going to be oppression. That needs to be continually challenged. And all that I would say is, you know, if you're a Secretary of State for Education, uh, you probably, you may have certain powers, but you don't have the power to change the oppression. That's something I think that disabled people's organizations uh, have to do. They have to challenge those oppressions wherever they are. And could you tell us a bit about your work at Alfie? Yeah, well, again, Alfie, I've been with Alfie for many years and uh, I work particularly with um, families who are struggling to get their youngsters into, get the right support in school. Uh, and that's becoming an increasing challenge because the government as the day uh, are segregating more and more kids Local authorities are breaking the law every day of the week by denying kids the support they require, by failing to do assessments, by failing to support the schools and the, the teachers uh, to do the job that they need to do. Uh, and we have to keep challenging that. And every, you know, even if it's working with one child, 
and going to the school and showing the school how they're breaking the law, which they are. Uh, uh, but increasingly, many people within local authorities and schools will just ignore the fact that they're breaking the law. If you broke the law as many times in your life yes. than your local school or local education authority, you would be locked up. Yeah. They're yeah. not locked up. They're given knighthoods. And why do you think that is? Power, abuse of power, a failure to listen, protecting uh, themselves. And what what is the most common problem you come you come up against in the last well, few years? Say, again, what the most common problem is the assumption. Uh, again, because it's often disabled youngsters I'm working with to get into their local school or local college. The most common problem is that they don't know who that young disabled person is. They've not listened to them. Mm. They've actually made assumptions based upon the impairment that the youngster has or the support that the youngster may have that may require to participate, but they have no knowledge, no understanding, or, or no intention of listening to that youngster. And That's what, where the problem starts. And what is the biggest change you've seen in young people over the last 50 years? The biggest change, I think, that, you know, I do think young people listen. I think younger people do listen. And I think somehow as they get older, that's locked out, that's knocked out. But I'm really quite, I'm, out, I'm optimistic because what we're doing so far is so awful that people are recognizing, but they don't know yet how to organize and challenge all those things that we're doing wrong. Mm. And, uh... You know, because this is going out, hopefully around the world, what message would you give to people uh, around I, the I world say, about inclusive education? I would say listen and listen and listen and learn yeah. from the very people that you're meeting for the first time, that you've known for a long time, and that you want to get to know more. Because if you want to know about yourself, you really have to listen to others. And how do you continually educate yourself? By talking to you. Yeah. By talking to everybody that I meet that wants inclusive education and also occasionally talking to those people that really object to inclusive education. What is the there biggest, are still many. What is the biggest fight you've ever had in terms Say that of again. A, what is the biggest fight you've ever had in terms of biggest education? Fight. Yeah. Oh, that was about that was about fifteen years ago in Lancashire, where uh, I was uh, sent to prison for uh, failing to uh, uh, to comply with the uh, the local authority, and mm. me and a friend were put in prison <clears throat> for only for a short time uh, for. Uh, breach of the peace uh, and failing to comply 
to magistrates ruling. But that was for a youngster who's now, I think he's now 25 yeah. uh, and he's living in his own home. He has his own staff uh, and he has a job and he's enjoying his life. And it was yeah. well worth it. Yeah. And how did, how did it feel when that prison door shut? Did you think, oh, I've really fucked up here? Or <laughs> were, you, were you really proud no. or what was it? No. In fact, you know, again, I think this is a good example. I'm white. I'm now middle class. Yeah. I'm articulate. Yeah. I was treated very well in prison. Oh, right. Okay. I, wasn't, uh, I wasn't a black young guy that had been picked up off the street by mm. the police. I was treated very well. Even though I'd broken the law in mm. their eyes, I was treated with respect. And, and I, you know, it wasn't a big deal. It was only for a few weeks. But yeah. uh, it's not very nice, but I would say that the family of that young person had years and years of struggle and hardship far, far more significant than a couple of weeks in prison for me. Yeah. Okay. In closing, would you like to give, would you like to say anything in closing or anything like that? Although, although I would say, Shabazz, is that I have listened to a number of your uh, interviews. And as I said right at the very beginning, you're a good listener. You're a good listener. And we need, I believe, many more people willing to listen and to give people the opportunity to be who they are and to challenge and to ask penetrating questions. Uh, but I do believe, you know, it's important that we're all prepared to listen to each other and learn from each other. That's and education. I, and I would just like to say a big thank you from the bottom of my heart for your time. And uh, th thank you for being yourself. And please Thank continue. you very much for allowing me to be myself. And please continue to be yourself. All <laughs> right. Uh, and on that note, bye-bye, everyone.